Good morning. Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian. My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here at Trinity, and I just want to add my welcome to that of Mike's and Tony's. Before we go any further, though, I want to I want to do a quick formation exercise here. It's really interesting. Every time that we have a ministry update in the second service, people clap afterwards. No, no offense to you first service people, but I realize we're a little bit dead, okay? And we're even more dead this morning, right? So we heard an incredible amount of things the Lord has done through our Mercy Committee. So can we just give a hand to the Lord? Amen. I just want to remind you, this is a, this is a worship service in which we participate and not just sit on our orange chairs. So, we are currently in the season of Lent, and that's that time when the church herself prepares for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lent is a season of intentional self-denial, so we might share in the self-denial of the cross of Christ. We, right now, are standing in long shadow of the cross, because we believe that everything changed by what happened on Good Friday. And we believe that the light that's behind that cross is nothing less than the resurrection, the event that changed everything. Friends, that is where we're headed. We are headed for Easter morning. And this particular Lent, we are walking through the wilderness with Israel. The 40 days of Lent are modeled after the 40 days wilderness temptation of Jesus. A temptation modeled after the 40-year temptation of Israel. And last week we heard that it is God who leads us into the wilderness to humble us. Yes, but also to reveal himself to us. So there's some quick context on our passage today. In between last week's passage and, and this week's, the Lord leads them the long way in the wilderness, but he leads them towards the Red Sea with the Egyptians hot on their heels. There's nowhere else to go. It was a situation exhausted of human options, one where only a supernatural solution would prevail, which God himself is planning to provide it, and indeed he does. He miraculously parts the Red Sea so that the multitude of Israelites can walk on dry land. And as they go through it, he crashes the waters upon the Egyptians following them. It's this miraculous victory. In fact, the first 75% of chapter 15 where we are is this beautiful tribute to the Lord's delivery. Sing to the Lord, Miriam sings in verse 21 right before our passage. For God has triumphed gloriously. It's this mountaintop experience. But then we get to verse 22, which is the beginning of our passage. And there's this dramatic change of tone. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. They have been baptized in the waters of the Red Sea, and the Lord takes them immediately into the wilderness. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching and reading of his word. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our great Savior. 
Oh Lord, and we just come to you right now confessing that we are tired and weary, Lord, we're trying to wake up. But Lord, we thank you that you are merciful and you meet us this morning. I pray that those hearts that are dull or heavy, Lord, that you would bring your light, that we might hear your word, hear your truth. Lord, we want to see you. In Christ's name, amen. So our sermon today has this very simple message. The bitter wilderness is both a test and a time to see and savor the Lord's sweetness. The bitter wilderness is both a test and a time to see and savor the Lord's sweetness. We're going to first look at the bitter water, then the test of the wilderness, and then the sweetness of the Lord. The bitter water, the test of the wilderness, and the sweetness of the Lord. So first, the bitter water. They are walking the wilderness of Shur, a bitter landscape. And they go three days without finding water. And finally, they find water, but it's undrinkable, tainted by the bitterness of the environment. In verse 23, it says, When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. This verse emphasizes the bitterness over and over, explaining that Marah is the Hebrew for bitter. They want you to... The narrator wants you to know that this is a bitter place marked by bitter waters. It says Mora or bitter four times. And let me just remind you of the Israelite circumstances because it adds to the bitterness. They've been slaves for over 430 years. And even as Moses pleads with Pharaoh to deliver them, Pharaoh rewards them with hard labor. Finally, they have to leave their homes in the middle of the night before being chased by the world's greatest army at the time. That's a significant trauma in and of itself. And now they've been walking through the wilderness for three days and they have found no water. That's terrifying. Dire. I carry an analogy with me everywhere. And I get grumpy if I don't have a drink of water like for an hour. Three days. Three days. And in the wilderness, that, that's not just uncomfortable. That's life-threatening. It's mortal. These are objectively bitter circumstances. And there are times in our life when our landscape is objectively bitter. Like we have legitimately and objectively been dealt a bad hand in life. Our circumstances are prickly and desert-like. And the only source of refreshment is this mirage of bitter water. You know bitter landscapes. I know you do. The water that should have refreshed you is bitter. Families that were meant to be loving and nurturing were sites of anger and dysfunction. Marriages intended to give life have turned bitter. Friendships became relationships of betrayal. Your job, your vocation, supposed to, to be this place where you serve, is actually a place of hardship. Maybe even this church is hard for you in some way. The scriptures have a clear-eyed honesty about the real bitterness of life. 
positive and encouraging describes Christian radio, maybe, but not the Bible. Honest and lamenting is about the other 50% of the Bible. If we were going to think God's thoughts after him, we as a people of God need to be comfortable in the, bit, in the minor key. All is not right around us. The wilderness, it's a reminder of that. It's a reminder that the, the ground that we walk in is cursed terrain. Thorns and thistles are no exception. They are the rule this side of Eden. And we should not judge the Israelites for the response in verse 24. It says, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? That's a valid question. Like, what shall we drink? But remember, it is the Lord who has led them to these bitter waters. Why would he do this? And that leads us to the second point. The test of the wilderness. The test of the wilderness. Verse 25 explains why. It says, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. God led them to these bitter waters to test them. Now that might seem harsh to you, that the Lord tests his people. But that's actually a massive theme in the scriptures. And it's essential to being human. Being human means that you are going to be tested. You see, in the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve in his own image. And the very first thing he does is test them giving them a law to obey. Our testing is a part of being made in the image of God. We are moral and covenantal creatures. Humans are uniquely accountable to the Lord for their deeds. You see, God does not test animals or plants. He doesn't. But our whole life is a test, an opportunity to steward our time and our energy, our body, our resources for our Lord. And we think nothing of a UVA professor dispensing a test to students. Because what does a test do? A test reveals what is inside. It's an x-ray into the heart and mind. And at the end of your semester, your prof- your, the professor releases your grades, which is a, a judgment of your performance. And so too Christians confess that Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. We are tested. God tests us. But what was the nature of the test of the bitter waters? Well, it, like all tests, is a test of faith. Would the Israelites believe God that he is going to guide them through the wilderness, or will they not? Would they trust him or not? So how did they do? How did they do on this test? Not great. Not great. They respond by grumbling against Moses. You wouldn't know it by this story, but grumbling is the primary sin of the wilderness trials. Merriam-Webster defines grumbling as a, a mutter of discontent or complaining. And that seems innocent enough, Right? Do you blame the Israelites for their discontentment with bitter waters? What's so bad with grumbling? If this is a test of faith, though, 
What does grumbling reveal about your faith? That you are reluctant to trust the Lord. Grumbling is a woe is me kind of attitude. Notice the grumbling is against Moses. Grumbling tends to be horizontal, doesn't it? We complain to each other. How often we talk about our hardships with everyone else except for the Lord, don't we? What grumbling truly reveals is our faith. How are we assessing our circumstances? And even more importantly, how are we seeing? You see, the wilderness is the test of our sight, or rather, if we're living by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. You see, in the wilderness, God is teaching his people not to live by sight, but by faith. You see, in the wilderness, when you're looking with your eyes, all you see is barrenness and bitterness. All you see is the bitter waters right before you. But God is inviting us to look at something bigger and better. And that's the problem with grumbling, is that grumbling just focuses in on the problem. It is hyper-focused on the problem. But all it can see is the problem. All it can see is the bitterness. It does not see anything else. Now the people's grumbling contrasts with Moses' response in verse 25. It says, and he cried to the Lord. He cried to the Lord. Did you know in the scriptures, this is a response never rebuked by God. And that it was the cry of the Israelites in slavery in Egypt that first moved God to deliver them. The Lord is always moved by our cries to him. And there's something about our crying out that both recognizes the gravity of bitterness, that these bitter waters are true, and yet it also recognizes the gravity of our Lord. He is the one who can save He is good. He is leading us. He can be trusted. The godly alternative to to grumbling is not Pollyanna stoicism. It is prayerful lament, a crying out to the Lord about whatever bitter waters we are facing. This is illustrated beautifully by by what uh, Women Together in the Word did this week. They were studying Psalm 30, which says, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord. Be my helper. You see, this is no less demanding than our grumbling often is. But do you see how it's oriented to the Lord? It's saying, Lord, take my plight seriously because I believe you can I believe you can save me and our women in our in this Bible study what they did is they they transcribed this into their own experience making it their cry making it their cry some of us need to turn from reciting our woes to each other to reciting them to the Lord who is our helper 
Grumbling has no place among Christ's resurrection people. In fact, Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Grumbling or disputing, those are the very words that come from Exodus. So friends, the wilderness is a test. Will we grumble or will we cry out to the Lord? In fact, not only is it a test, it is the place of testing. Are we walking by faith or are we walking by sight? The test of the wilderness reveals our character, our hearts, the nature of our faith. But the test also reveals something else. And that leads us to our third point. It reveals the sweetness of the Lord. It reveals the sweetness of the Lord. And we see the sweetness of the Lord in three ways. First, he makes the bitter water sweet. The waters that once were bitter, noxious, even harmful, become nourishing and wholesome. And the Israelites can literally taste the sweetness of the Lord. It is on their tongues as they drink this. Who is the Lord? He is the one who makes bitter waters sweet. Amen? Amen. And he does this throughout the scriptures. He takes Joseph, who is sold as a slave and then imprisoned, and he makes him the head of the Egyptian empire. Joseph will say at the end of his life, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Or take Naomi. In the book of Ruth, her whole family dies, and she renames herself Mara, bitter. But the end of Ruth ends with, with, with a child in Naomi's lap, and the town women praising the Lord for his redemption. He makes the bitter waters sweet. And friends, we could recite a whole bunch of stories in this room about how the Lord has made the bitter water sweet. I just want to share one of mine. Growing up, I grew up in the Texas Panhandle, and the two things that I was most bitter about as a teenager and then in college was the fact that I was from the Texas Panhandle <laughs> and that I was disabled. I have a physical disability, cerebral palsy, and those things actually went together because in, in, the t in where I come from, in this very small town, the, the, the proof of manhood is, is either two things. It's the size of your pickup truck, and it's how good you are at football. Now, I could have had a pickup truck, but I didn't. It's not who I am. Um, but but this, this having a physical disability in this, in this Friday Night Lights kind of world... It's just bitter. These people don't know me. I can't excel. I can't. I, I'm a nobody in this place. And I would struggle with my disability as a teenager, the ways that it made me awkward. I wanted. To, I loved sports so much and wanted so badly to play in it. I couldn't. And yet, friends, one of the ways that God provided for me, I finished college. And I, I was feeling a call to ministry in some way. And so I applied to seminaries. And one of the incredible things 
is that um, the Lord decided to provide for me for seminary on those exact two things that made me bitter. It just so happened that uh, a very generous woman who lived in Amarillo had started a scholarship plan for men who wanted to go to seminary. And so she had this very generous scholarship for anyone who wanted to apply to seminary. And that covered about two-thirds of my entire seminary education. And for that last third, the seminary that I ended up attending had a special scholarship for those who were disabled. And so the very two things that I hated most, that made me most bitter, God, why did you give me this providence? Were the very two things that God chose to bless me in. The bitter waters became sweet. It became an opportunity to taste the sweetness of the Lord. What is your Mara story? We need to share those as a community of Christ. But number two, also God sweetly promises to be Israel's healer. He makes them a, a rule here at these bitter waters. Verse 26, 26 says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. To paraphrase, the Lord is coming to Israel and saying, I want you to trust me, to listen to me, to defer to me and obey me. And if you do, I will be your healer. You're a caretaker and provider. I am for you and not against you like I was the Egyptians. They were my enemies, but you are my friends. Do you hear that? The Lord sweetly promises to be their healer. And finally, the Lord is sweet in the sense that he gives them provision and rest. Look at verse 27. It says, Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. Remember, there's this multitude of people that are wandering without water. And they're early in their journey. They're suspicious and fearful. They're tired. And they've only encountered bitter water. But the Lord leads into Elim, which is this oasis in the wilderness. And those numbers are incredibly important and symbolic. Twelve springs of water meaning that one spring for every tribe of Israel. It's a number of fullness and provision. God is providing water for all the people, all of them. And then that number 70, seven is a number in the scriptures of completion, of rest even. In other words, what God is doing is he's saying, take a rest. Take a rest. In the midst of this Wilderness, lie down your head. Do you see the Lord's sweetness? In the wilderness, he provides rest for his people. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He invites us in the wilderness, to rest our heads on his lap, to breathe easy. 
Friends, do you see the sweetness of the Lord? We would not know it without the bitter waters and the tests of the wilderness. You see, the Lord tests his people to the end that they might know him and his sweetness. Did you notice what means the Lord used to sweeten the bitter waters? It says, And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. A tree. A tree that points forward to another bitter sweet tree. The apostolic fathers saw in this a foreshadowing of the cross of Christ, the tree that makes bitter water sweet. And we read also of Jesus in our scripture reading in the garden the night before his crucifixion. And did you hear him? He's not grumbling, but he's crying out to his father in submission. It says in Matthew 26, verse 38, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Do you hear the bitterness? He knows what he's about to face. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He is pleading about his cup. What is this cup? It is the cup of bitter waters that he drank at his cross. It was the cup of his father's wrath, a wrath that he did not deserve, a bitterness he did not deserve. Brothers and sisters, in this life, you will taste bitterness that you did not deserve. People will sin against you. Your body will break down and fail. It probably already is. And every one of us in this room is a victim in some way. And when we are, Jesus suffers with us. But Jesus also drank the cup of bitter waters that you did deserve. You see, every one of us has betrayed our Lord and each other. We have constantly failed the test in the wilderness. In fact, we are at fault for the wilderness in our world. Russia, Ukraine, we are at fault for that. Every conflict in our world, the violence, there's a part of us that are indicted because we have rebelled against the Lord. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty of that grief is eternal bitterness that is being cut off from the sweetness of our Lord. But this is how great His love is for us. That Jesus drank the bitter cup that we deserve. That we might know the sweetness of the Lord. He chose bitterness. That we might have sweetness. All because of his sweetness. Brothers and sisters, the wilderness we are in is a test. This pandemic, this period of church transition... This news cycle, whatever you are facing, it is a test of your faith. Will we look to the Lord for salvation or will we give in to bitter grumbling? It's a test of our love. Will we love each other or will we devour each other? You see, the Lord is testing us, inviting us to cry out to him for salvation and strength. And every test is an opportunity to see and savor the sweetness of our Lord. What are you grumbling about right now? 
as I was preparing for this sermon, I found myself grumbling about others grumbling. <laughs> How about that for self-deceived, self-righteousness, right? <laughs> the Lord is calling you neither to ignore the bitter waters nor to hopelessly grumble about them. This Lent, he invites you to cry, to cry out. And maybe for some of you, that means journaling. Like, you need to write it out. The prayers and psalms are written out for a reason. Maybe some of you need to take a long drive in which you and God just hash it out. Maybe you need to go for a hike. Whatever it is, the Lord invites you to come and cry out the bitterness that you are seeing. There's a powerful African-American gospel song often sung around Lent called, He Never Said a Mumbling Word. No one knows where it came from or who wrote it. But one of the first known recordings was of the Mississippi State Penitentiary in the 1930s. The penitentiary was modeled after a plantation. As you might imagine, many African-Americans were prisoners there. It was a bitter landscape, to be sure. Prison, first of all, hard labor. Also, being African-American in Jim Crow, Mississippi. And yet this song that was recorded here, he never said a mumbling word, it, it makes it all the more remarkable. Because it, it narrates Jesus' path to the cross, but the angle it highlights is Jesus' silence. This is how it goes. It says, oh, they whipped him up the hill, up the hill, up the hill. Oh, they whipped him up the hill. And he never said a mumbling word. Oh, they whipped him up the hill, and he never said a mumbling word. He just hung down his head, and he cried. Each stanza gets closer to Christ's death. They nailed him to the tree, to the tree, to the tree. They pierced him in the side, in the side, in the side. His blood came trickling down, trickling down. And each stanza affirms he never said a mumbling word. It's a powerful liturgy for a bitter landscape. Can you imagine these brothers who have no rights, who if they say anything, they could get punished. And they are reciting this powerful liturgy of our Lord. This, this song comes from Isaiah 53, 7, which says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Indeed, as Christ drank the cup of bitterness for you, he did not grumble or mumble once. And when he did speak in his passion, his words were without complaint and without bitterness. Rather, his words were a cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They nailed him to the tree, to the tree, to the tree. Oh, they nailed him to the tree. He never said a mumbling word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these brothers who went before us in Mississippi. We pray that we would learn from them about the nature of our Lord. Lord, would we be a people who do not grumble or complain? Would we be a people instead that cry out to you? 
And Lord, would you meet us in our bitterness, wherever and whatever it is, Lord, we ask that you would be sweet. And we praise you that you are, that you are incredibly sweet to us. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.